Hello dreamers and welcome to this 254th episode of California Dreaming. Before we dive into this, I have a few notes about the show. This is an independent ad-free production, which means the only way we're going to bring about more listeners is you, and this is how you can help. You can leave a nice rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You could recommend us in true crime social media groups, and if you would like to go above and beyond, and you need some exclusive content to binge, you can become a subscriber on Patreon. Starting at just $1 a month, you will gain access to dozens of full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And you'll be helping to keep the show moving forward, and of course, the doggies treat jars full. If a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation, or a many-time donation, through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I would like to say thank you to Derek, Tamara S., Sarah A., Lydia N., Jennifer G., Jane G., Gabrielle M., Christina S., Cedal B., Jennifer S., Mimi, Nora, Jeffrey C., Megan, Ray, Emily W., Lee B., and Kim S., for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or making a donation through PayPal. And Jane G, I want to thank you for your generous donations. You do it pretty regularly, and I want to thank you for thinking about me each month. I'm behind on the thank you cards again, but I will catch up. I always seem to eventually. But anyway, let's get on with today's episode. The story today was recommended to me by listener and longtime Patreon subscriber Denise M. Thank you so much for messaging me about this. The backdrop of the story is 1980s in the city of Orinda, California. It's east of San Francisco, across the bay, and it is the location of the actual inspiration point. It was, and probably still is, an affluent community and just a really fun place to be a teenager circa 1984. MTV had just become a thing, and while I remember the times well, I was a little bit younger than these kids. By the time I was 15 or 16 years old, Grunge was taking over and the styles, music, and fashion were all changing drastically. We were kind of a brooding, angsty bunch that wore flannels and Doc Martens. And the girls that we're going to talk about in this story were the girls that we wanted nothing to do with. And you will understand as we go along. And, you know, living in an affluent community... I mean, it doesn't seem like it was all that much different than it is today. We just have more ways of showing off the things that we have. Like seriously, let me tell you this. Many of you know that I just recently got a new used car this last week. And I did almost all of the paperwork and everything online. So when it was time for the car to be delivered to my apartment, the phone representative was like, do you want the red carpet treatment? And I was like, excuse me? And she said, the red carpet treatment. We'll bring a red carpet for you when you get your car. And then I was like, you know, I'm low-key angry that that is even a thing. 
If you bring a red carpet, I will use it to roll somebody's body up in it. But that's the kind of junk that I'm talking about. I got the car through CarMax, which my husband and I, we've purchased cars from there twice. And we've been pretty happy with the whole thing. And I'm not getting paid to say this. I'm just saying it. But if CarMax wants to pay me, you know where to find me. But it was even easier since the last time I did it pre-COVID. When they said red carpet, I was like, yeah, no. And if you know CarMax and if you've bought a car through them, they're all across the United States. And when you do get a car, they stick this obnoxious yellow bow on the hood. So yeah, when the phone rep said red carpet, I told her that if you value me as a customer, for the love of all things holy, please do not show up with no damn red carpet and don't even with the yellow bow. And what they want is for you to show off your new ride on social media and put you on a red carpet like you're at an award ceremony because that's how people do things nowadays. We post all of these pictures up on social media like, look at me, look what I just got. Back in the 80s, you had to show off in person or like on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I remember how important it was to have the brand name clothing. Brands that you and I probably haven't thought of in a really long time, like Sassoon, United Colors of Benetton, LA Gear, Jordache, Esprit, Stussy, Z Cavaricci. And remember those stupid hypercolor shirts that changed colors that basically encouraged people to fondle each other by putting their grubby hands all over one another to try to get your handprint to change the colors on somebody's shirt. And that actually might have been barely into the 1990s. I might be wrong. If you're wondering why those shirts vanished as quickly as they appeared on every single person in the world, it's because for one, that stupid shirt changed colors if you had sweaty pits. And two, after you washed it a couple times, it lost its color changing ability and ended up turning some ugly and weird shade of brown. So voila, a multi-million dollar company is declaring bankruptcy within a year. Those were the days, right? Well, in high school back then, if you were from an affluent community, as a teenager, it was important to have all the trendy things that all of your friends had. Cute clothes, cute hair, big hair, right? And if you didn't, if your family didn't have the means, but you somehow found yourself stuck in this school with all these popular kids that had all the cool stuff, you basically felt like shit about yourself every day. That's why being punk or grunge or goth was so cool in and of itself, because not only did you not have to worry about that day-to-day -day BS with everyone at school, the fact was you just didn't care. Everyone knew that you didn't care and you didn't waste your time concerning yourself with them and they didn't concern themselves with you. They just called you weird and avoided you and everybody was happy. Being weird is like a safe space. Not too weird though. Then you start getting added to watch lists and things. But then there's a handful of young people who are kind of out there on the fringe. Those kids who just really don't quite fit in anywhere comfortably. 
I guess they'd be watchless types. Not necessarily, but could be. We, and we often find out about them when it's too late. For example, when we covered the Uvalde shooting a few months back, the kid who did that, well, he was a man technically since he was 18, but it said he was bullied. They called him school shooter. He was told that he was giving off school shooter vibes. And yeah, look what he did. In a study, kids were asked to look at a bunch of reasons why school shootings happen and to rate that reason on a scale of one to five, one being strongly disagree, five being strongly agree. Rate each one of the reasons. Well, 87% of those that were questioned said that they strongly agree that the reason why school shootings happen is because that person wants to get back at those who've hurt them. 86% agreed it's because other kids picked on them and made fun of them or bullied them. And following those two top reasons, 62% said that it's because that person didn't value life. 61% they have been the victims of physical abuse at home. 56% agreed that those persons have mental problems. Also, 56% said that it's easy for them to get a gun. 55% they don't get along with their parents. 54% they've witnessed physical abuse at home. 52% they use drugs or drink alcohol. 49% they don't have any good friends. 37% they see violence on TV, movies, and video games. 34% violence is a way of life in their neighborhood. 28% other kids encourage them to do it. 26% their teachers don't care about them. 20% they're afraid for their own safety. And 18% do school shootings because they're bored. The teenager who is one of the main subject of today's episode did not shoot up the school. What she did was much more intimate, up close and personal. And while even she will tell you and you will hear her tell you in her own words that there is no justification for what she did, the reasons behind it, according to the study that I just shared with you, ranked at the very top, the top two reasons really, and I'll tell you all about it. But I want you to take yourself back to high school and think about these characters that we're going to discuss. You may have been just like her. You may have been just like her victim. You may have been right along with me, off into your own little world with your one or two close friends who couldn't wait to get the hell out of school and get away from all this nonsense. At the time our story took place in Orinda, California, it was considered to be a safe neighborhood and community to live in. At the time, being a stay-at-home mom was still a common thing. Not that it isn't now, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with being the working mom, the stay-at-home dad, or whatever the case is. A breadwinner is a breadwinner. They're both respectable roles that require a ton of hard work, but whatever. Lots of stay-at-home moms at this time in 1984 which, you know, it can help when it comes to raising kids, keeping them busy, keeping them on track and out of trouble to have a parent around. Some kids don't like having their parents around all the time. 
Some don't know any different. It just depends. But the vibe here in the 1980s was still kind of like hanging on to the traditional way that things used to be done. Things weren't perfect, but looking back compared to the way everything is now, it feels like life was easier. When I was getting to the end of high school, I never worried about being able to get a job or to afford college, you know, but anyway, Orinda for the most part, life was good. The community was good. The families, they were all well-to-do. Their kids went to good schools. And for the most part, the kids were enjoying their lives. The music, the trends, the pop culture, it was fun. So Kirsten Costas was a very typical 1980s teenage girl. In 1984, she was 15 years old. And I don't want to say or point out, I don't really like to say or point out all of the superficial things about Kirsten that were the popular things to be and to have because superficial has like this negative connotation, but I really couldn't think of a word to describe it. She was all of the perfunctory things that people valued about each other in school. She was popular. She had tons of friends. She was really pretty. She was talented and athletic. She was a member of the swim team. She was a really good soccer player and she played softball. And she had a really nice magnetic personality that attracted friends very easily. Everything about Kirsten was very cool. She was with all the latest trends. She had short, cute, curly hair. She was really into fashion and she always dressed to the nines. She had the sun-kissed skin tone and she didn't even have to sit in the sun for hours on end to achieve it. Everything for her was just effortless. When I see girls on social media nowadays, it looks like it takes so much time, effort, and money to pull off a trendy look. And I'm all for getting out of bed and getting the day started without looking like a hot mess, but not having to waste half the morning trying to leave the house so I match all of my filtered selfies. So in June of 1984, Kirsten had just wrapped up the 10th grade at Miramonte High School and was headed into summer vacation. And things really could not have been going better for the 15-year-old. I guess that they held cheerleading tryouts for the upcoming school year before summer and Kirsten made it onto the team. I'm not a cheerleader never was so I would have no clue when they had tryouts but apparently making it onto the squad is a super huge deal and I honestly don't even really think tryouts were a serious thing because every year it was like the same girls and like the one same guy on the cheerleading team and the tryouts was just a thing that they did because they enjoyed rejecting people but anyway the kids who wanted to get onto the squad were pretty competitive. And I mean, the whole school seemed to have this real strong competitiveness built in because these kids came from families that were so successful and affluent. And this was exactly the type of family that Kirsten was from. Her dad was pretty high up there as an executive at 3M. You know, the company that makes post-its, glue and tape, and I'm sure that they do lots more stuff that's 
those are just the things that I can think of that I have around the house. So he worked in San Francisco. He's got this really good white collar job. Kirsten's mom worked part time. She did work within the community, but she mostly was the stay at home mom. And Kirsten was like their golden child. And I'm not going to sit here and say that she wasn't that. But, you know, she was privileged. She had a pretty charmed life. But I have to get honest with you. She had a little bit of a mean girl streak. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's a matter of opinion. What to what degree? It just depends on who you talk to. And it depends on what our individual definition of a mean girl is. What feels mean to one person might not amount to anything for anyone else, you know. I questioned myself and how I felt about this as I went along through this case. And I'm not even sure where I'm at with it because we do have to keep in mind that we're talking about 14 and 15 year old girls here as we go along. They kind of are mean to each other or they can be pretty vicious. So at the time, it seemed that this high school had these social clubs. I mean, we had high school clubs, right? Math club, French club, glee club, chess club, whatever. But I'm gathering from this case that these clubs that these girls were involved in were more like sororities, not like college. I guess my interpretation of what was going on in this high school was kind of like the movie Grease, where they had the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies. In order to be in a club like that, it meant that you met some sort of social status standard. So at Miramonte, there was this large core group of popular girls, and apparently the criteria was to have cute hair and cute clothes, and they were called the Bobolinks, and all the girls wanted to be in this club. They were the coolest and the most popular kids, and if you were allowed in, it could define your entire high school experience. The cool kids were the ones who dictated whether or not you were popular, and it made a difference in terms of whether or not you were somebody who was likable. And chances are, if you weren't a likable person, then you were probably going to become the target of bullying, ridicule, and taunts. And it could make your life absolutely miserable. Being a member of the Bobolinks was a big deal. You had to get invited. And that was another thing that happened for Kirsten and to her close friends. They got the coveted invitation. They're called the Bobbies for short. So we'll just call it that from this point forward because it's super annoying to have to say Bobolinks. So the Bobbies were, if we're being honest, a club of elitist snobs. You had to come from a rich family. At least it helped a lot. You had to be one of the most popular kids in the school ahead of getting into the Bobbies to begin with. So it wasn't that joining the Bobbies was going to make you popular. You had to already be popular to even be considered. Then if you got in, you would reach that elite Bobby level of popularity. So their cover story, the way they justify their existence is they do charitable work and they raise money. But the truth is, most of these girls come from money. 
And if there's a fundraiser, it's kind of like the money is already a given. They don't have to go far to come up with big donations. And that gives them even more standing and clout within the school. The only things that mattered aside from your family wealth and the brand name clothes that you wore was the kind of car that you drove. It's very superficial. My high school was like that. In my senior yearbook, they took pictures of some of the seniors in their cars. There were BMWs and remember those VW convertible cabriolets, Hondas, Acuras. Nobody was taking picture of the punk kid in his rusty old Plymouth Duster, right? And Kirsten and all of her friends, well, they weren't quite driving age yet, but they were getting there. It was like they were ready-made to become a Bobby. It was just a matter of the formalities, right? And towards the end of the school year, another girl who was looking at being initiated into the Bobbies was Bernadette Prady. If any girl was to be considered for membership, they would be invited at the end of their sophomore year, and then they would be members of the Bobbies for the final two years of high school. In the documentary I watched about this case, it described Bernadette as one of Kirsten's friends. But my impression is that it wasn't really all that much of a friendship. It used to be at one point back in middle school. But in high school, if it was a friendship of any sort, then it was pretty one-sided. Once they got the invite, the next thing they needed to do was go through the initiation process. An example of one of the things the girls had to do was that they either had to rub mayonnaise or raw eggs in their hair, put on some of their mom's ugliest clothes, and go set up a kissing booth on a nearby street corner. And apparently membership into the Bobbies was worth all of this humiliation. But the thing is, if you're popular and confident, it's not going to be all that awful of an experience. And if you're doing it with a bunch of other recruits who are also popular and confident, then it definitely wasn't going to be all that bad. And it might even be fun. Nowadays, this type of activity feels like something someone would call the cops or the school would have all these rules against it. I mean, it is a form of hazing, so I get it, but still, gone are the days, right? So anyway, if you pass the initiation and you're inducted into the Bobbies, then you're in with the cool kids and high school is going to be nauseatingly fun. So it would be about a week or so into the summer vacation for the Bobbies to begin their hazing or initiation activities, whatever you want to call it. And back then, you know, things were done over the landline. Someone had to be at their house making phone calls to get the word out to everyone as to what's what and everything that was going on. So it was a Thursday night, June 21st, 1984, when the telephone rang at the Costas home. Kirsten's mom took the call and the caller was a classmate of her daughter's letting her know that they had a Bobby's initiation dinner to go to that Saturday night. She said that there were a couple of other girls that were receiving invitations. So Kirsten's mom took the message that one of the members was going to pick her up on Saturday night for this dinner. And she passed it on to Kirsten later that evening. 
And two days later, on the evening of Saturday, June 23rd, Kirsten was in fact picked up for that dinner. But the person who did pick her up was someone that Kirsten did not expect. It was Bernadette Prady. It's really hard to say what the nature of Kirsten and Bernadette's friendship was like. And all we can do is infer based on the information we have about this story. But from what I read and watched and listened to, it kind of sounds like if Kirsten had nobody else in the world to hang out with, then Bernadette would be someone she would hang out with. I don't think Kirsten liked Bernadette very much, but it is my impression that Bernadette very much wanted to try and be friends with her. I have a yearbook picture of Bernadette that I'll post up on social media when this goes live. In the photo, on the surface, Bernadette looks like she could fit in with the popular girls. She's pretty, she has a nice smile, she's got beautiful blonde hair that isn't obnoxiously big. And I can see that if we didn't know anything about this story, then yeah, superficially, Bernadette could very easily be one of those girls. She could be a Bobby. And to an extent, it's my understanding that Bernadette doesn't come from the kinds of wealthy and social statusy families and backgrounds that Kirsten and her friends did. So the surface level superficial stuff isn't really going to be enough to carry Bernadette through. If your family doesn't have the money, then you're not going to drive an expensive car. You're not going to have the brand name clothes and you're not going to have the money to do all the stuff that the other girls like to do together. Like go out, go to the mall, go to the movies, go shopping, you know, hangout funds. I mean, I didn't grow up poor, but I got an allowance. But it wasn't like I could go shopping at Wet Seal or Contempo Casuals every day after school and hang out at the mall all day and have all kinds of money to spend. And to me, in my experience, it always seemed like everyone else always had money. I can only assume that once Kirsten and her friends got to know Bernadette and they came to find that her family didn't have the means for her to have all the cool things, the clothes, the shoes, the accessories, the car. And you know, when you're 15 or 16 years old, it feels like there's nothing worse than not being able to have what all your friends have. To us now as adults, it sounds pretty lame. And I remember trying very hard to not give a crap when I was that age. And I was fairly successful at it because it was also cool to not give a crap. That's basically the cornerstone of Generation X. But I do clearly remember when I was bringing up my daughter in the 2000s, I remember never wanting her to feel like she couldn't have the things that she wanted. And I mean, within reason. And I only had one kid. But because I sent her to school in my parents' district, and that was because I wasn't ever sure where I was going to end up, kind of floated around in life. Well, I still am, but that's besides the point. The school was in a very affluent area, and she was way more social than I ever was, which I love that about her. So I never wanted her to feel like she couldn't go hang out with her friends or do the things that her friends wanted to do. 
especially when it came to school activities. I didn't really give her an allowance, but if she wanted to go to a dance or go to the movies or whatever, I always made sure she had spending money. I never wanted her to feel left out. It can hurt. And some of you might know that. I know that. We've all been left out. Bernadette is that girl who seemed to be perpetually left out, shunned, rejected, and unaccepted. What seemed to be going on with her, for one reason or another, reasons known only to her, Bernadette apparently wanted to try to make friends with Kirsten. And what I suspect is happening here is that Bernadette was kind of like on the verge of being friends with her, but Kirsten just, she just didn't like Bernadette. And it seemed like she occasionally tolerated her presence, sometimes acknowledged her as someone she sort of knew, but Kirsten was definitely surrounded by plenty of girls that she clicked up with, and when they were around, I'm fairly certain Bernadette didn't even exist as far as Kirsten was concerned. But Bernadette wanted to be in, and she had it in her mind that if she could just get Kirsten to accept her, then the whole squad would just fall in line. So, as it turns out, it was Bernadette who called up Kirsten's mom that Thursday evening, telling her about the initiation dinner that upcoming Saturday night. But the truth was, there was no Bobby's dinner. But Bernadette did come to Kirsten's house, and she did pick her up. And when Kirsten got into the car and realized who it was, it became very quickly apparent that there wasn't a dinner. At some point, it became apparent. I don't know exactly when. But for at least a few minutes, Kirsten decided to give Bernadette the time of day. It seemed like she was very annoyed at the whole ruse, so Kirsten wasn't really going to be all that pleasant about it. However, we only have one side of the story, because by the end of the night, one of these girls would end up dead. Kirsten got into Bernadette's car, and the whole thing was just tense. And they seemed to have spent approximately 30 minutes together. They drove and ended up in the church parking lot. There was nobody around, and I believe it was Kirsten who had some weed on her, and she wanted to at least smoke maybe to make it so that the whole night wasn't a complete waste. But whatever it was that happened next, Bernadette said or did something to just annoy Kirsten. And they argued. And at some point, Kirsten got out of the car and started to walk home. I don't think that they were all that far. They drove a little bit of a ways. Because Kirsten ended up making it to the house of somebody. It says a neighbor. And that would be the house of Alex and Mary Jane Arnold. I don't get the impression that she knew them. I think she just picked a convenient place. Maybe she saw the lights on or whatever. She told Alex Arnold that her friend was acting weird and she wanted to know if she could borrow their phone to call her parents. But when she did call, nobody answered. So Alex Arnold offered to give Kirsten a ride home. And she accepted, and as he was driving, he noticed that a Ford Pinto was following them. Now, at the point where 
Alex dropped Kirsten off at her house, there are two slightly different versions of what took place. They're not that much different from each other, and I'm not sure which one is correct, but I'll tell you both of them. The first version is that Alex dropped Kirsten off and he drove away. He was driving a Volvo and the events that unfolded next were witnessed by Kirsten's neighbors directly across the street from her house. The second version is that when Alex dropped Kirsten off and she got out of the car, she was approached by Bernadette. He saw a quarrel begin between the girls and soon he saw what he believed to be Bernadette attacking Kirsten. He thought he was seeing a fist fight. And this may have been the reason why he just decided to drive away at that point because the neighbor whose house that this fight was happening in front of saw the Volvo pulling away from the scene. And by that time, Bernadette had already gotten back into her car and driven away. And I sort of wondered why if Alex Arnold saw these girls getting into some sort of fisticuffs, why would he just drive off as an adult dealing with two teenage girls? Do you think maybe he should have gotten out of the car and try to get these girls to break it up and go their separate ways and make sure that they did? If these girls were strangers to me, I'd probably stay out of it, but that's just me. Nowadays, most of us would be pulling out our phones, collecting video evidence, and getting home as quickly as possible to upload to our social medias. And I have yet to catch anything exciting on video. I don't know about you guys. If I see stuff, I'm usually trying to be nosy and pay attention, and I don't even think about opening up my camera until it's too late. But anyway, he would later on go on to explain why he drove away. Either way, it wasn't his fight to break up. It wasn't his business. Maybe he just wanted to stay out of it. Maybe he wanted to get back to his Saturday night TV lineup of TJ Hooker, The Love Boat, and Fantasy Island. But whatever the case, Alex Arnold drove away before really knowing the exact gravity of what was happening. It would end up being Kirsten's across-the-street neighbor, a gentleman named Arthur Hillman, who was alerted to something terribly wrong outside when he heard the sounds of a blood-curdling scream. When he got up and glanced out his window, he saw Kirsten stumbling across his front lawn, screaming and covered in blood. He knew her. There, he's the neighbor across the street, and he knows her family. He hurried outside, and when he did... That is when he noticed the tail end of the Volvo driving away, but he quickly turned his attention back to Kirsten, who it would later be determined had been stabbed five times with what is believed to have been either a 12 or an 18 inch butcher knife. It depends who's telling the story. Well, Arthur Hillman tried in vain to help stop Kirsten from bleeding to death, while at the same time attempting to comfort her, he called for his son to dial 911. Kirsten was transported to a local hospital, but she was mortally wounded. Her parents made it to the hospital just before she died. The city of Orinda was left reeling. This is a kind of crime. This level of violence just wasn't a thing there. While law enforcement, investigators, and detectives worked on collecting evidence and speaking to witnesses, the Volvo that was seen leaving the area pulled back up to the house where all the police activity was at. Now, 
Arthur Hillman did not see the stabbing, nor did he see the person who did it, but he did see that Volvo. And just as he was providing authorities with a description of the vehicle, that's when it returned. And he was like, that's the car. That's the car that was driving away as Kirsten came up bleeding onto his lawn. It was Alex Arnold. He didn't live too far away from the Costas home. And so the immediate thought was, is this guy involved? He was seen driving away when Kirsten was stabbed. And here he is, like a walking cliché, coming back to the scene of the crime. Well, Alex Arnold had an explanation. He was at home that evening, minding his own business when he heard a knock at the door. Now, in some reiterations of the story that I've heard, I was under the impression that Alex Arnold was someone who was familiar with Kirsten, which is why I thought she fled Bernadette's car and went to his house, but I'm not really 100% sure. But even if she didn't know him, this was still a time when people were a little bit more trusting about opening their front doors and accepting rides from strangers. But either way, when Alex opened his door, he found a very upset Kirsten standing there on his porch. He even described her as looking scared. But I don't know. I get the impression that Kirsten was annoyed and angry at Bernadette. I don't know if she was necessarily afraid of her. I tend to believe that Kirsten was pretty mean to Bernadette at times. So I'm not sure if that is indicative of someone who is really scared of a person. Because if you're scared of someone, you're not going to make fun of them. But I don't know how serious the argument between the two girls was in the time that they were together in the car. And at this point, it doesn't seem like there was any mention of a knife. Kirsten didn't tell this neighbor, she's got a knife, she's threatening me. At that point, she asked Alex if she could use the phone to call her mom and dad. They didn't answer, so he offered a ride and Kirsten accepted. He told detectives that as he pulled out of his driveway, he saw that there was this beat-up old Ford Pinto parked on the street and when he began driving in the direction of Kirsten's house, the Pinto began following them. Alex asked Kirsten who it was, but she told him to not worry about it. So when they arrived at Kirsten's house, her parents had not yet come home. So she went across the street towards the Hillman's house with the intention of asking them if she could wait for her parents to come home at their place. It was then Alex Arnold saw the girl driving the Pinto get out of her car and quickly run up to Kirsten. He heard Kirsten yell at the girl to go away, and that is when Bernadette brandished a knife and began stabbing her. Bernadette then ran back to her Pinto and drove away. According to Alex Arnold, he left the scene because he wanted to follow the person who attacked Kirsten. He tried following her for a short period of time, but eventually he lost sight of her. At that point, he decided to go back to where the fight had taken place to see if Kirsten needed any help. By then, the quiet street was swarming with law enforcement personnel. So it was going to be up to them to make the determination if the story that Alex told them was the truth or if it is too fantastical to believe because... They weren't really believing it when he was first telling it. In the meantime, investigators spoke to Kirsten's parents 
in the very early morning hours of the next day following their daughter's murder. Her mom told them that she received a call two days earlier about the initiation dinner for the Bobbies. One of the details about the call that she shared with the investigators was that the caller told her that Kirsten wasn't supposed to tell anybody about the dinner because it was supposed to be a big surprise. When investigators looked into it, they found out that the Bobbies had no initiation dinner planned that evening. When the caller told Kirsten's mom that there were going to be several calls going out to other recruits, that was a lie too. The whole thing was a farce. So it led investigators to believe that that call was meant as a setup and Kirsten was the target. The person who made the call was a female and it really had to be someone pretty familiar with Kirsten to know that telling her that it was an initiation dinner for the Bobbies would be a surefire way to lure her out of the house that night. They wanted to find where that call originated from, which wasn't as easy to do then as it is today, since switchboards weren't computerized. If you wanted to trace a call, it was like how it had to be in the olden days. For example, when there was, say, oh, like a kidnapping and a ransom, like that never happens anymore, right? They wait for the demand call and the police would be set up with all their little call tracing stuff at the person's house who was being called. And then they'd have to keep the caller on the line for a certain amount of time in order for that call to be traced. I mean, the good old days, right? Nowadays, with all of us connected to our phones, we can make determinations about things like never before. Most recently, for example, in the Alec Murdoch case, they were able to break down not only where everyone was traveling, but how many steps were being taken and the pace at which those steps were being made. They could see that before Paul and Maggie Murdoch were shot, Alex was walking around all slow and casual-like, but after they were shot, all of a sudden, he's running around like Usain Bolt because he's got to get his alibi in order. But yeah, they're going to do whatever investigative things that they did back then to try and figure out who made this call. Meanwhile, Alex Arnold was cleared as a suspect. Go figure, right? A man who's essentially a stranger giving a teenage girl a ride, doing a helpful thing, and then she gets killed, not by him. He's actually pretty lucky to get cleared, considering we know how fast conclusions can get jumped to in some cases. Well, fortunately for him, it just so happened that it wasn't his TJ Hooker love boat fantasy island night. It was bridge night, and he was hosting it. And he had a handful of friends over at his house at the time Kirsten came knocking on his door, who all corroborated his story. I mean, even though game night with friends is the worst alibi ever if you happen to be named Russ Faria and your wife gets murdered by her crazy-ass best friend Pam Hupp, who then goes on to somehow manage to manipulate the entire police department and prosecutor's office into believing that you did it, but I digress. The police department believed Alex and his game night buddies, but then what this also meant is he became the only eyewitness to the murder with the exception of the killer, of course. Alex was able to describe Kirsten's killer as somewhat chunky, but not overweight, and 
She had long, stringy blonde hair, and she was in a fugly, old, messed-up yellow pinto. He didn't get the license plate number, so they were going to have to do the rundown of all the yellow pintos in the area. And while that would be a much easier task today, like tracing phone calls than it was back then, and shockingly, the yellow pinto was all the rage, apparently. Yeah, back in 84, it was going to take some time to track down a California blonde in a pinto. If they could just figure out who picked up Kirsten that night, it would give them a good direction to go in this investigation. It seems like a no-brainer to us today, but like I said, back then, things just didn't spread like wildfire like they do today. It's very, very difficult to call anybody nowadays without it getting tracked right back to you. Just look at that Alex Murdoch dumbass. He totally set both his wife and his son up to be down at those kennels on his hunting property. He contacted Paul and told him to come down to help with some problems he had with some sunflowers. And then he called Maggie up and told her to come down to the property because it was either his dad or his mom was taking a turn for the worse health-wise. Both of those stories came back to bite Murdoch in the butt big time as it lended to the notion that he lured the both of them there down to the property so he could take them both out at the same time. It was way easier to get away with that type of nonsense years ago when things just didn't get communicated instantly to everyone in the world with the tap of a phone screen. And here, in this case we're talking about today, nobody was thinking that the person who did this was anybody known to Kirsten or to any of her friends or classmates. And I mean nobody suspected, not even anyone in their school at first. They were all convinced that this had to be someone from outside their happy little bubble of Orinda. Investigators had to start somewhere. So they interviewed anyone and everyone to try and figure out who it was that called Kristen with the fake story about the initiation dinner and who it was that picked her up from her house that Saturday night while they also tried tracking down every Ford Pinto owner in the San Francisco Bay Area and the surrounding communities. It was going to have to be done the old-fashioned way, one phone call at a time. In all, in the radius surrounding Orinda, there turned out to be more than 500 yellow pintos. I can't imagine seeing one of those death traps these days, much less 500 of them. I'm sure that there is a cult of pinto enthusiasts out there somewhere, and I think I've talked about pintos before, and some of you may have come at me talking about, I loved my pinto when I was in high school. I had to push it home half the time and it only caught fire twice, but I loved it so much. Like, I get it. I just parted ways with my dearly departed COVID Hyundai. But anyway, the search for the Pinto was on, as was the search for who the girl Kirsten was with the night that she was stabbed. The news of Kirsten's murder was a big deal in Orinda because of the rarity of violent crimes such as this and it really had the community feeling on edge. And of course, when nobody knows what's going on, the rumors and speculation start flying around, especially when high school kids are thrown into the mix. But the principal of the school was going to the media and talking about how Kirsten wasn't this type of girl who had this shady double life that would get her into trouble. She was just 
one of those kids in school who was a good kid and a top student, whatever, whatever. And I say whatever to that because we've had plenty of honor roll students who do some pretty serious crimes. And I think in the nearly four decades since this murder took place, we've learned that you can't put anything past anyone. Until the crime is solved, everybody is a suspect, right? Just because Kirsten looked good on the outside and did well on paper, it doesn't mean she didn't earn herself a few enemies and some frenemies. You will notice that <laughs> nobody in this story is saying Kirsten lit up a room. Kirsten didn't have an enemy in the world. All that cliche junk we hear about murder victims from people who knew them. I think all of us have reached that point where we just kind of take those statements with a grain of salt. And for me, it's just in one ear and out the other. But in this instance, in this case, all the glowing reviews are noticeably absent, at least when it comes to Kirsten's peers. So investigators started talking to the kids at Miramonte High School, starting with Kirsten's closest friends, to see if there was any reason anyone might have a grudge against her. And you know how high school kids can be. They're competitive and jealous, even amongst friends. And they found out that Kirsten and one of her best friends, they spent their free time entertaining themselves by making prank phone calls to the kids at school that they didn't like or who weren't as cool or as popular. Kirsten was also on the varsity swim team. Did she have an issue with a teammate? Kirsten was also on the cheerleading squad. Was somebody all jealous over there? Of course, the media likes to stick their noses everywhere, and they managed to get some interviews with a few of the students at the high school. And there was this one Bobby recruit named Karen Boris, and she was quoted as having said something that I think that shouldn't have been printed in the newspaper, but she stated she, meaning Kirsten, was popular in a clique-ish group, a cheerleader. I think the person who killed her was making a statement that they hated Orinda. In other words, Kirsten symbolized everything that everyone, the whole high school, and the entire community placed value on. And whoever killed her did it because they weren't a part of it and had nothing but hatred for everything. And while I think that is something that might be an angle for police to take a closer look at, I feel like it was a bit of an inflammatory thing to be putting out there in the newspapers, especially coming from the mouth of a 16-year-old girl. But I get it. People are thinking that this was a murder committed by someone who was bitter, angry, jaded, and jealous of Kirsten and everything that she had going for her. So police were going to have to take a serious look at any one of the popular girls, Kirsten included, who may have shunned, slighted, alienated, teased, taunted, or ridiculed other kids. And they were also going to have to identify those kids. They were looking for someone who was not only angry, but jealous. And that jealousy had all manifested into hatred. And all of that manifested into murder. Kids get jealous of other kids who are cool and popular. Either they join the angsty, brooding punk kids or they continue to wallow in their own self-pity while continuing to be bullied and tormented. It can be a very awful experience for kids, especially if they were already struggling with insecurities and self-esteem issues. 
I don't think the problem has completely gone away nowadays. I think there's more awareness. Things can be much more easily documented. And my daughter, who graduated from high school in 2017, I did ask her about bullying many years ago. And she said that it doesn't happen so much in person in school like it used to because it's just not cool to do that and you're going to get in trouble. But it happens online and on social media. That's where these kids get to be mean as they want to be and they get to do it from behind a computer screen. So as investigators spoke to students at Miramonte, they started to see that Kirsten, they started to see her in somewhat of a different light than what she was presented as being at the beginning, at the onset of the investigation. One of her former classmates who was interviewed for the documentary that I watched stated, quote, she was just very outspoken and she kind of told it like it was in her own way. I can remember Kirsten just being like denigrating, very dismissive. <sighs> Ouch, right? Dismissive is one thing, but denigrating? This documentary I watched was made in 2016. And all these years later, 32 years after the fact, this classmate remembers Kirsten the murder victim as being denigrating. If you look up the synonyms for that word, it's ugly. Insulting, abusive, derogatory, malicious, vicious, catty, offensive, vitriolic, contemptuous, scornful, hateful, venomous, insolent, malignant, debasing, malevolent, offending, disdainful, belittling, degrading, berating, nasty. The list goes on and on. And it really stood out to me that someone would use that word to describe Kirsten, denigrating. That's what she's remembered for. Another classmate interviewed for the same documentary named Nancy Kane stated, she could be mean, definitely. I think she could be condescending. You know, it was always talking behind your back, talking when you're walking down the hall. It's always in a look, but those looks are killers. So, these scathing opinions of Kirsten had investigators thinking maybe this wasn't someone who had a vendetta against the whole club of popular girls in the Bobbies, that perhaps it was just Kirsten because they kept hearing the same thing over and over again. She was just downright mean. But along with that came the speculation. Who hated Kirsten so much that they would actually want her dead? Rumors started to go around as to who this person may have been. And the students assumed that it had to be someone who wasn't so popular, someone who wasn't that cool. Who at school did everybody hate? That's what the girls, mostly the girls, started doing. They basically went down the list of people who they all hated and came to the conclusion it had to be one of them. And of course, they zeroed in on one of the punks. She used to dye her hair dark black. She kind of wore it two-toned. She wore black all the time. And it was pretty common knowledge that she did not like Kirsten. And it turned out to be the woman that I just quoted in the documentary, Nancy Kane. And of this, she stated, I made it clear that I did not like Kirsten. I don't like any of your friends. I don't like what you stand for. I was angry at what she represented. 
I didn't want to be the same as everybody else. To me, it became very boring. I dressed a lot differently than everyone else. I colored my hair. I wore a lot of black. I had a lot of eye makeup. I didn't wear jeans and button-down shirts and topsiders. I smoked a lot of pot. I drank a lot of booze. I was a rebellious teenager who was looking for trouble. And while the police were months into the investigation and still had not come up with a suspect, the students at Miramonte were pretty sure that they solved the mystery. It had to be the most outspoken, rebellious student in the whole school. And that was Nancy. Nancy admitted that in her first year in high school, she was with the popular kids. She was a part of that clicky crowd. She had become friends with Kirsten in middle school. They hung out together. They played sports together. And Bernadette Prati was a part of that, too. The three of them, they all knew each other, and they just kind of hung out because they participated in the same activities. It was sort of friendship by default. But when they got to high school, the relationship between Nancy, Kirsten, and Bernadette shifted majorly. And by sophomore year, Nancy was so sick and tired of the clicky, cool, superficial, popular crowd, and she became pretty openly vocal about how much she couldn't stand them and how stupid they were to want to be, dress, act, and look exactly like one another. And she would question this whole culture of popularity. Why would you want to be a part of something so lame? And Kirsten was, to the rebellious kids, the representation of all the things that they couldn't stand. It got to a point that anytime Nancy saw Kirsten, she would just get so irritated and mad that she actually wrote on her high school binder that she wanted to see Kirsten's blood drip. Yeah, that's pretty damning stuff. And she wrote the word three times, drip, drip, drip. So with all the rumors flying around about Nancy, police brought her in for questioning. They wanted to know if she could account for her whereabouts the night Kirsten was stabbed. In other words, are you the one who made Kirsten's blood drip, 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 as you so eloquently wrote on your notebook? Well, Nancy told investigators that she was at the movies watching Ghostbusters. That movie was released June 8, 1984, 15 days before Kirsten's murder. Investigators wanted Nancy to take a lie detector test, but her parents refused. It raised suspicions even more, but neither Nancy or her parents were worried that she would be implicated. But to be honest, I think they did the right thing. Maybe people who refuse a lie detector test raise suspicions. But seriously, how many guilty people insist on being given a polygraph because they want to clear their names because they think they're going to be able to pass it? And if they don't, then they can just write it off as being inaccurate because it's an unreliable science anyway. The polygraph is neither here nor there for me. I don't really take them into consideration anymore. And this case we're talking about today only confirms that for me. I get why Nancy was zeroed in on as a suspect. It's like Adnan Syed writing on Heyman Lee's breakup letter, I'm going to kill. It doesn't mean anything until somebody gets killed, or in Nancy's case, gets their blood dripped. The lack of progress on the case and all the rumors flying around really started to take a toll on Kirsten's parents as they were convinced that someone at the school knew something and they were desperate for whoever it was to come forward. So just before the beginning of the 1984-1985 school year, 
when Kirsten would have been starting her junior year. She would have turned 16 years old exactly one month to the day that she was killed and probably would have been driving her own self to school for the first time. Her mom and dad held a press conference. It was the first time that they spoke publicly about their daughter's murder. They wanted answers. They wanted whoever had information about what happened to come forward and to provide those answers. In addition to that, they were desperate to not only see their daughter's murderer pay for what they did, but they also wanted to see the person capable of doing something like this behind bars. As long as they're out there free and anonymous, they have the potential to harm someone else. And at the press conference, they reminded everyone that the person who stabbed their daughter could be sitting right next to you in geometry or English or biology. And the notion that Nancy Kane had something to do with Kirsten's murder was bolstered by the fact that when the first day of school rolled around that September, Nancy was a no-show. After that, everybody was convinced that it was her. And then the police found out that Nancy lied about her alibi. She wasn't at the movies watching Ghostbusters. So she ended up going back to the police department on her own because when she told that Ghostbusters lie, her parents were there. She knew that there was a lot of suspicion swirling around her because of everyone knowing how much she couldn't stand Kirsten, so she needed to fess up to the truth, at least to the police. And while lying to police isn't the wisest thing to do, in this situation, when you pull back and look at the big picture, it's really not that big of a deal. And it's understandable why she would want to lie in front of her parents. But she was at her boyfriend's house. She wasn't watching Ghostbusters. And while police really wanted to fit Nancy into the case as the likely suspect, and now she's an admitted liar, they took a look at her alibi and it checked out. Nancy Kane was cleared as a suspect. And I don't get the impression that Nancy was mad at being a suspect, but this left police once again without any leads, without any direction to go in the case, and they were three months in at this point in time. Frustrated and really having no idea what to do next, investigators reached out to the FBI for assistance. They contacted the local agents in the San Francisco area, and naturally they turned to the mine hunters over at Quantico, Virginia, for their help in developing a profile of the killer, which would help them narrow down who they might be looking for, and it was a new thing in 1984. FBI profilers were going into prisons and talking to guys like Edmund Kemper. And I mean, how good was that guy who played Kemper in Mindhunter on Netflix, right? Pretty eerie. Anyway, who better to learn about killers than from killers? One of the significant things that stood out about Kirsten's case was the fact that she was stabbed as opposed to being shot. As we've said before, it's a very personal way of killing someone and it is indicative of there being a great deal of anger and rage aimed at the victim when someone uses a knife as their weapon of choice. In the end, it took the FBI about three months to review the case and to develop a profile of who Kirsten's killer would most likely have been. And it was very specific. It said that Kirsten's killer would have likely come from a large Catholic family. 
the killer would be female, white, between the age of 13 and 19, and she lives in or near Orinda. She's someone who is known to the victim. She drives a small car and will not publicly display remorse for the crime. So once investigators had this profile in hand, they went back over the list of people who Kristen was friends with to see who fit the mold. And they managed to check everybody off the list with the exception of one person, Bernadette Prati. Come to find out that Bernadette wasn't necessarily as bad off as she may have thought or perceived herself as being. She did come from a very large Catholic family and that could have put some financial strains on them. Her dad was an engineer. They lived in a very nice home in Orinda. And at first, it didn't seem like very many people thought Bernadette could have had anything to do with Kirsten's murder, especially when the idea started getting bounced around that she may have been involved. People believed Kirsten and Bernadette to be friends. They had been in school together for a few years by the time the murder took place. They were pretty close in age, and both of them were looking to be initiated into the Bobbies. And she seemed to fit in with the kids. She was a decent student. She was quiet and sweet. There was nothing at all that was threatening about her in the least. She attended Kirsten's funeral. She was accepted into the Bobbies come the fall semester. She was a full-fledged member. She started her junior year without a hitch, and she seemed to be somewhat sad over Kirsten's death. People just weren't convinced it was her, and the police weren't either. After all, they kind of pulled her name out of the FBI profiler's hat, right? That profile was the only reason they turned to take another look at her. And by all accounts, there was absolutely nothing about Bernadette that raised any sort of red flags. Looking at her, there wasn't anything in any kind of way to indicate that she would have had anything to do with this. She had been cooperative and nothing about her day-to-day -day life since the murder seemed to have changed. Sometimes when we have cases like this involving teenage girls doing harm to one of their friends, it's like one of them eventually begins to crack. The enormity of what they did starts to take its toll to a point where they just can't continue carrying on with this burden of guilt and shame and fear that they have to have with them everywhere that they go as a result of this terrible thing that they did. But not Bernadette. When they first spoke to her after the murder, there was no indication at all that there was ever anything off about her. She was always very emotionally even. She was calm. She answered questions without hesitation. She said that the evening Kirsten was killed, she was babysitting. She was even given a polygraph test, which she passed with flying colors. There was nothing that raised any red flags with any of the investigators so it had them questioning the fbi's profile maybe it's just not quite an exact science after all they're talking to guys like kemper who does the insane things that he did to his victims and this is what they came up with for bernadette it didn't make any sense bernadette didn't make sense for this crime 
and she had been dismissed early on as a suspect. But still, that FBI profile was nagging at them. They had to reconsider taking another look at Bernadette. So when investigators went over to her house to speak to her, this was by then six months since Kirsten was killed, they were immediately taken aback when they noticed the car parked in the garage happened to be a busted up old yellow Ford Pinto. They hadn't even considered the thought that Bernadette was involved because she wasn't 16, she didn't have a license, and she didn't drive. The Pinto was a family car, but still, they couldn't overlook the fact that that was the car that they'd been looking for for six months, and it had been sitting right there all along. They decided to check up on the alibi that Bernadette had provided. She said she was babysitting the night of the murder. Investigators never followed up on that. They just sort of took her word for it. And when they did follow up, they found out from the family that Bernadette said she was babysitting for the night that Kirsten was killed. They said that they hadn't hired her to take care of their kids for well over a year. Bernadette wasn't at their house babysitting, as she originally stated. By the time these investigators were really beginning to narrow in on Bernadette, they had already spoken to her four times. So they went ahead and brought her in for a fifth time, and they had the agent with the FBI leading the questioning. At that point, the, with the evidence that they had, the Pinto and the lie about her alibi, that was all they had. They had nothing in the way of a murder weapon or bloody clothing, no physical evidence to link her. So they were going for a confession. During the questioning, it stood out to investigators just how cool, calm, and collected Bernadette actually was. One of the detectives presented her with the manila folder that contained the FBI's criminal profile of the person who was likely to have been the one who stabbed Kirsten. And they pointed out how it seemed like a spot-on description of her. So Bernadette asked, Well, do you think I did it? The detective was like, Yeah, I think you did it. Bernadette's immediate reaction was to deny involvement. But they continued to put a tremendous amount of pressure on her. However, they weren't able to squeeze a confession. And with that, Bernadette was free to go home. Short of a confession, they just weren't going to be able to make a murder case against the now 16-year-old. Over the next couple days, Bernadette was left to ponder what she was going to do next. The anxiety and stress and fear continued to build as she figured out what her next move was going to be. What was she going to do? Where was this going to go? What was in store for her future? While it seemed like Bernadette had been able to push everything deep down and bury it all in the recesses of her mind and heart and soul in the six months since Kristen's murder, it was starting to become unbearable. So Bernadette wrote a note to her parents. Dear Mom and Dad, I've been trying to tell you this all day, but I love you so much and it's so hard. 
so I'm taking the easy way out. I just can't be near you when you see this because I've already caused so much pain. The reason why it took so long on Friday is because the FBI man, Mr. Hilby, thinks I did it. And he's right. I can't bring her back, but I'm sorry. I would kill myself except maybe that would hurt you even more. He told me that you would still love me, but not what I did, and that life was still worth living. I hope so. I've been able to live with it for a while, but I can't ignore it. It's too much for me, and I can't be that deceiving. I've spoken to a priest, but I still can't take it. I need to turn myself in, with you, if you would come today. Please forgive me. I need you. I'm so sorry that I've been a disappointment to you in every way. I'm even worse than words can describe and I hate myself. And after all I've done, I still have demands, but I don't know what else to feel. I need your love. Please still love me. I can't live unless you love me. I've ruined my life and yours, and I don't know what to do, and I'm so ashamed and scared. I love you, Bernadette. When Bernadette handed that letter over to her mom, she told her to wait a half hour before reading it. She walked out of the house and left. Her mom took her kitchen timer and turned the knob to 30 minutes and waited for it to tick down to the bell. If it were me, I would have read it right away. The suspense would kill me, but that's just me. However, I know what the letter contained, and it was probably the last thing her mom expected to read. And when she finally did, I mean, it's hard to even fathom the shock when reading a murder confession from your teenage daughter. Once Bernadette returned home, her mom and her dad drove her down to the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, and she provided them with a the full confession. And for the first time, the detectives who had spoken to her a half dozen times in a half dozen months finally saw the emotional reaction that you would expect to see in a young girl who did something as awful as this. Bernadette, for the first time that anyone had seen up to that point, shed some tears. She was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Much to the shock and relief of Kirsten's parents and the entire community. Those who went to school with Bernadette, those who played on teams with her, socialized with her, sat next to her in class, could not believe that the quiet, mild-mannered, shy young girl took a butcher knife and did what she did. And for the entire six months, she was able to carry on with life without so much as skipping a beat. So, what happened? I'll let Bernadette tell you in her own words. Anytime you want to say something, just say it. What are you going to tell the press? You're a juvenile, okay? You're under 18, and the press does not get your name. Okay. Uh, don't you have to just tell them something or anything? Yes, we'll tell them that someone... Okay. Well, what are you going to tell the family? What are they going to tell the parents? 
that someone has been identified. And that's all? Yes. Okay. Um, do what I mean is, do I go to juvenile hall or do I get to go back to school? You go to juvenile hall and then you refer to the probation department. Well, could they decide that I stay there or go to a new school or? They'll decide whether you stay in custody or whether you're released or what. Okay, uh, do you have any idea what date they'll decide? And uh, that's all um, that goes on my record? The courts will decide, right? Plus it's a juvenile record. We need to go through a few details. And like I say, I think if we, I know it's tough, but if we could do it now, it would save you having to go through some things later on. Yeah. Did you call Mrs. Costas? Yeah. When was that? Thursday night. Do you remember what you said to her? Well, just mainly, you know, I just said I was some girl, and that it was for a Bobby initiation. I don't remember what words I used and stuff. I just thought, I don't know, you know, just mainly told her what to tell. I don't know, just, you know, that's all. I said, you know, that Kristen, that the initiation dinner was on Saturday night. And that's what I told her. And I don't, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a big, long call or anything. I think she asked me what Kristen should wear, and I said anything or something like that. I don't know. Did you tell her a skirt? I don't remember. Okay, then what did you do? I don't remember what I did on Friday. I remember on Saturday I had orientation at John Muir Hospital for being a candy striper, but I don't remember what I did that day. Okay, what about that night? Well, I, um... Okay, um, so I honked outside her house. I think, I didn't know which house was hers, but I think I honked at the wrong one. And she came running out and she said, oh, it's you, or whatever. And then we went to the church because she wanted to smoke or whatever. And I didn't want to. Then what did you do? We just talked. We argued, not argued really, but she didn't think it was any big deal, and I just didn't want to. She made me feel real dumb about it. Like this one time I was around her and she really seemed to be putting me down, and I don't know, I felt really, just everything that had happened to me before, like all the bad feelings and all the bad things had come out, and she thought I was being weird because... And she just, she said she wanted to go home. And she just ran down the street. And I said, I'll take you home. And she said, no. Then I went and followed them. Then I, and then we got there and I. Let's go back, okay? Let's not talk about that right now, okay? Let's back up. When you picked her up, you said you beat the horn. Yeah, she said, oh, it's you because she didn't know who it was going to be. And she said, well, I thought this was like a Bobby's initiation. I told her about Matt's party, and a lot of people don't tell their parents and stuff. So the Bobby initiation thing was just sort of so she could, you know, go to the party. She knew that there wasn't an initiation anyway because, 
you know, she heard from other people that there wasn't. Okay. She suggested that you go to the church to smoke some grass. Yeah. Okay. Then she walked down to the house. Did you run after her? Um, yeah. I don't know if she was really... She was running, I guess. Then I was just standing there going, I don't know what. I didn't know what was going on. Then I ran after her because I was going to, because she was said she was going to go home. And I thought, oh, well, I'll take her home. And she ran down there and asked those people to take her home. And I said, well, I can take you home. And she said, no. So I went back and got in the car. And I think then I drove the car down from the church parking lot. And they were just pulling out of the driveway. And then I think it just, like, the engine died or something. I don't know. Did you have trouble starting it? Well, that car, you always do, so I don't remember. I just remember everything was... Uh, I was driving really fast, so I don't remember if I squealed the tires. I think I did, and then I thought, that man is going to think I'm just crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I really didn't know. When I was starting the car, I, I didn't know where everything was and stuff. Okay, so you followed them over there. Were you real angry at that time, or were you trying to scare her a little bit? I guess I was angry. I don't really know. I just got out of the car, and she was talking to that man or something, I guess saying thank you. And I think he was starting to drive away, and she was telling me to go away. And I just, you know, and I just got angry, and I did it. I didn't like, I ran up to her, and I stopped. She said something to me. And then I did it. And it happened so quick, I, I don't really know. It was like it was, like I was screaming, and she was like way up ahead of me, and she was running away, and I was running away, you know? I wasn't pursuing her. I was getting home, and she was, she was getting away from, and I was just, I don't know what I was thinking. I just ran, I was running, and I got to the car. I just threw the knife in, like in the back, and I got in, and... Okay, what kind of knife was it? Like a kitchen knife. I don't really know. I mean, I couldn't pick it out now if it were in the drawer because I didn't want to think about it or anything. Try to remember what color the handle was, or the shape of the handle, or something like that. It was wood. It wasn't really wide. It was wider than a dinner table knife. It wasn't... I don't think there was anything special about it. I just, like, grabbed it. I didn't think. You didn't put it in the car before you picked her up. No. I was like, I noticed it when I was getting in there, but... I wouldn't know if the knife was under there. I was thinking of my sister, Gina, and she always leaves stuff lying around. But I don't know if it was Gina. I mean, I don't think she drives around with knives in her car. But that would be one reason why it would be there. I didn't go into the kitchen and get it before I picked her up, though. Okay. And then what did you do when you got home? When I got home? I don't know. 
All these awful things were going through my mind, and I thought the police were going to be there, you know? I was just like waiting. I kept looking out the window, and then I took a walk with my mom and dog. Where did you put the knife when you got home? Okay, I can't say I didn't know what happened. I knew what happened. I just left it in my room. I came in and I got something. I don't know what I did with it really. But then I put it in the kitchen the next day when no one was there. Have you ever written anything down about this? Yeah. When? Last Friday, you know, when I talked to you, there were a lot of things I thought about. And I wrote them down in plain sentences. And there's a note I wrote to my parents this morning saying I did it because I couldn't say it to them. I couldn't look at them when I... I kept trying to tell them, but I couldn't. So Friday you somewhat suspected we were thinking you did it? No, I knew you knew, but... Um, well, I just thought you couldn't prove it because it's been so long. I just thought, well, even if you can't, you know, I have to do something, you know, because I just wish that it had never happened. I wish that I could do what I have been doing and just go on because I've been fine in school and I just blocked it out of my mind. At school and everything, everything was fine and everything was going well, except for it was always there, you know. I couldn't get rid of it. And that song on the radio, every time I hear it, I have to turn it off because I think of her, but, or people talk about it and stuff. But I was really good about blocking it out of my mind, and I still am. That's why I was able to go back to school this fall. That's why I can live through every day, because I just forgot it, because it doesn't seem real. It still doesn't. I'm still having a little problem with the church there. What did she do that got you that angry? Well, I guess I really should tell you the background. I have a lot of inferiority feelings and really bad feelings about myself. And I lost for cheerleader. And I didn't get in the club that I wanted to. And I didn't get on your book. I don't know, people sent out messages and stuff that I just felt had it. And just all that stuff. And she just seemed to sort of represent it. And she brought it all back. And like when I was talking with her, you know, she never liked me, but I thought she was okay. And I just thought, you know, it would be okay if we were friends. I mean, we were gonna be in the bobbies together and stuff. It was that things, you know, that I couldn't change. And I hate that stuff. Like, like losing at things or money or looks or popularity are stupid. I mean, I just, I always felt like I never have friends over because I always, I don't know, I'm just like embarrassed about everything and I don't know. Did she ridicule you or did she do something to you there? She just sort of put me down. I mean, she didn't say you're ugly or something. She just said stuff that made me feel bad. And so I remember one time we were on a ski trip together. And we don't have a lot of money and stuff, and we can't afford a lot of nice ski stuff. And I just had this really crummy pair of skis and some boots, but 
You know, I was having fun anyway. And she made some comment about them. And it just seemed like everyone else was thinking that, but she was the only one who had ever come out and say that. And I thought she was just going to tell everyone at school that I was really weird and everything. And I was really scared. And I just didn't want her to be talking about me at school. And the way I called her up and stuff, it seemed really weird. And I was embarrassed, and I didn't want her to tell everyone. But it wasn't her fault. I mean, if you're saying she provoked me or something. I wasn't thinking of threatening her. I just did it. Do you have any boyfriends? I'm trying to ask you something. You know what I mean? Well, I like boys. If you're saying am I attracted to girls or whatever, no. I sort of get a lot of crushes, and I've gone out with a lot of guys. I used to be a typical teenager when it comes to that, you know. I'm not the most popular one, so I don't have guys around me all the time, but I don't know. I've gone to all the dances and stuff, and I'm sure I would get asked to the junior prom if I ever end up going back to Miramont and all that, you know. And I think, I don't know, I, I like guys, but and I think they like me too, I don't know. What did you write? Do you remember? I wrote something like that Kristen's parents deserve to know what happened or something. And I think I wrote down that I would rather turn myself in than have everyone know what I did. I also wrote down I think I could kill myself if I wanted to. And I know I could because, I mean, I probably never could have before, but look what I did, I mean, like to Kristen. I never would have thought I could do that, and I did it. And so I probably could kill myself if I wanted to. And so I saw that as an option. But I thought if I killed myself, I thought, I thought, well, I've already caused a lot of pain because I knew my parents would know. And so that would be pain because, well, I sort of made them feel like they were bad parents. Do you still see that as an option? I would rather die than ever. I mean, like one time in the office, Cindy said that the person, that when they catch the person, I think that what should be done to them is that they should have everyone at school know that they did it. And they should have to go to school for a week. And you can imagine what that would be like. And that's what it would be like for me if everyone knew. I mean, I know if people knew that just like 500 people would want to shoot me right now. Is there anything we can, I can get you right now? Or is there anything, is there anything you... No, but I kind of have to go to the bathroom. I think I'm going to be sick. Okay, there we go. You feeling a little better? Yeah. Your parents seem very supportive. They're going to be a big, big help. Yeah. I have a couple more questions that I wanted to ask you about. Do you remember what Kristen was wearing that night? Uh-huh. She was wearing kind of like fuchsia-colored shoes with polka dot holes in them. I remember because she said, do you like my new shoes, when she showed them to me or something. I don't know. And she was wearing legging things like tights. But I don't know if they were tights. I mean, they weren't light tights. I don't know what they were. And a skirt and a white blouse. Okay. 
When you called Mrs. Costas to set up the meeting, she asked you what you should wear. Did you tell her to have her wear a skirt? I said something nice. I don't think I would have said, no, make sure she wears a skirt, you know. How long had you been up at the church? I don't know. Not very long, but kind of. I don't know, probably half an hour. I don't know. It seems like we talked too much for it to be, I mean, we didn't sit there and talk and talk and talk, but, you know, it was like a quick argument, you know? Why did you follow her? Because I wanted to explain, you know, because she kept, she's going, you're weird, and I wanted to explain, you know, that I wasn't. I wanted to, you know, be nice and, like, make sure she got home okay, you know, because she wasn't going to be driving with me or whatever. But still, you know, that's why. And also, I, I don't know, I was just thinking, I don't really know why. I mean, I do. What were you wearing that night? I was wearing, I don't remember if I was wearing brown shoes or I was wearing white shorts with uh, sweats on top and a purple sweatshirt. Do you still have those clothes? Positive, I still have the purple sweatshirt. What about the shorts? I threw them away. Did you have any blood on them? Is that why you threw them away? Did you have any blood on you at all? Uh-uh, and I don't know why. It just didn't get on me anywhere. If it did, it didn't show. I'm starting to get, like, kind of cold. You want my coat for a little bit? Okay, I'm not that cold, but... Have you ever said anything to anybody at all? Oh, yes, I have. I told a priest. A priest? Yeah. What did you tell him? I didn't give him all the details. I just told him that I was feeling awful about something, and I just sort of changed the facts, you know. Could you tell me his name? I don't know his name. He's some priest at Union Church, but he's not really going to tell you anything because they're not allowed to. Well, they are if you say they can. Well, I don't know. I mean... Do you have a problem with that? I don't really want to. I mean, it wasn't like confession or anything. You said before that you got angry and you just did it. Did you intend to kill her? I didn't, like, threaten her. I ran up to her and I said, Kristen, I said to her, like, I was going to drive you home or something, you know. And so she wouldn't, I don't know. And she said, just go away, just go away. And she was banging on the door and, I don't know, she's so mean. I wasn't thinking, you know. It was like nothing made sense that I did. Or, I mean, I wasn't thinking about it. I didn't hesitate. I mean, I don't know. I didn't think. What I was doing, I didn't think. Why? I didn't think. And it's like it was almost not. I mean, after, I was like trying to get out of it by not saying it was me, but, you know, I really feel it wasn't me. It was weird. It was the weirdest feeling I've ever had. It was, it was exactly like I was watching it. I was hurting her, but 
And then I was thinking, I wonder what happened to her. And that's when I got home. I didn't know if she was dead or alive. And then I found out she had died, but not until the next morning. What happened was I was in the shower and the phone rang and my mom said, talk to Gigi. She's on the phone and she's crying. And I thought Gigi, I thought Gigi was calling saying, Bernadette, everyone says you did this to Kristen. Tell me it's not true. That's what I, and that's what I thought she was going to say. And as it turned out, she said, Bernadette, someone's murdered Kristen and you know, and. Did you know that she was hurt pretty bad? No, I thought for sure she was alive. And I thought for sure she was going to tell everyone that it was me. And I was just waiting. I, I wasn't waiting really, but you know, I was kind of waiting. Did you want to hurt her before? Is that what you went down there for? Not really. I wanted to. I wanted to do something to change the way it looked like everything was going to be, you know. I wanted to say I'm not weird, but, you know, I regret it. I had dreams about her, and I remember all the mean things about her. But I couldn't ever think it was her fault. And I don't think there's any reason in the world that justifies killing another person. I just keep wishing I could push time backwards. I think that's all. I see your parents are out there. In fact, we can go out. Here's your coat. Thank you. So I'm not completely sure where I'm at with this interrogation. It seems like Bernadette is like someplace else, not in the moment, not really grasping reality. She certainly doesn't exhibit any kind of emotion. She has a pretty flat affect and her eyes are darty at times. And I don't know if she really gets the gravity of what she did. She didn't even call Kirsten by her correct name. She called her Kristen. So did the interviewer, but he may have just been going along with her. However, Bernadette had been dealing with this for six months by then. She broke down and became emotional when she finally did let it out that she was the one who murdered Kirsten. But just the fact that she started off by asking about the press, if they have to be told what happened, if they were going to tell the family, is she going to go to juvenile hall? And she even thought that going back to her high school was even an option. She asked how long it would take until she could go back. I mean, she's under the impression she's going to just be able to pick up and head back to class on Monday morning, right? But for the most part, this interviewer, I don't know who did it. I don't know if it was the FBI or if it was one of the sheriff's detectives, but the camera remained trained on Bernadette and I'm pretty sure she's wearing a wig, which probably makes her feel even more weird and insecure because it looks like they took it off a 1970s department store mannequin. She admitted to being the one who called Kirsten's mom with the ruse about the initiation dinner to lure her out of the house. When she got there, Bernadette drove her family's yellow Pinto, and it's a car that nobody seemed to associate with her because she wasn't of driving age yet. So when Kirsten got in the car and she saw who it was, she said, oh, it's you. Ouch, right? Clearly, this girl did not like Bernadette 
and wasn't really interested in trying to pretend to even when nobody else was around. So if Kirsten disliked Bernadette so much, then why did she go ahead and get into the car with her? It's hard to say, but she obviously had some weed with her and figured it was an opportunity to drive someplace quiet and secluded so she could smoke before telling Bernadette to take her home. And what better than a church parking lot on a Saturday night? But for reasons known only to her, Bernadette didn't want to smoke. I don't know why other than I guess maybe it's likely she never tried it before and was nervous and self-conscious about it. So she turned down the offer and told Kirsten that she didn't want to. I wondered if things would have gone differently if Bernadette had accepted the offer and the girls sat in the car and smoked together. Maybe the whole thing with the weed was a litmus test on Kirsten's part to see if there was anything redeeming or cool about Bernadette at all. And perhaps she just got annoyed, even more so than she had been, finding out that Bernadette had set this whole thing up and this was likely where the argument between the girls commenced. If the first thing that came out of Kirsten's mouth was, oh, it's you, when she saw Bernadette, then she's probably not going to have very much of a filter after that. Classmates said Kirsten wasn't afraid to speak her mind. And we can imagine that this is just turning into a crappy night and she just wanted to get the hell out of there. She got picked up by the last girl in school that she wanted to hang out with. She doesn't even want to smoke with her. And then she finds out there's no initiation dinner. If Kirsten was as mouthy as her friends described her as being, then she's probably not afraid for her life just yet. And she's likely starting to talk a bunch of smack to Bernadette. I can only imagine how Kirsten's annoyance and anger continued to escalate with each passing minute that she's sitting in this car with this girl. And I don't think that there's anything that Bernadette could have ever said or have ever done that would have gotten Kirsten to change her attitude or change her mind about how she feels towards her. Teenagers can be stubborn, obnoxious, rude, and cruel. And based on what we know about Kirsten, she's probably going off on Bernadette. And as for Bernadette, you know, she messed up by faking this whole dinner invitation. I just think that there was no way that that was ever going to end well with Kirsten, no matter what Bernadette said or did. She said that she did this so she could try to talk to Kirsten and try to get her to be friends with her. But I don't think that there's anything she could have done to try to get through to Kirsten. Girls like that just aren't going to change because of a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Kirsten bullied and ridiculed Bernadette in front of an audience of her friends. And now that Bernadette got Kirsten alone, she probably figured it was the only way she could get Kirsten to hear her out. But if it went down the way Bernadette described, it sounded like Kirsten was willing to give Bernadette a chance so the whole night wouldn't have been a complete waste by going over to the church to smoke weed. But when Bernadette said that she didn't want to smoke... I think that was the end of it for Kirsten, and she just wanted to go home. And then Bernadette wanted a chance to try and explain things to Kirsten, but she was absolutely no longer willing to put any more of her time into this. Kirsten told Bernadette that she was weird, and she got out of the car and went to a nearby house to ask to use the phone. At that point, Bernadette now had a whole new set of problems on her hands, 
because she was under the impression that Kirsten was going to go back to school and tell everybody what she had done and that she was weird and that she lied about this dinner. And because of that fake invitation to this Bobby's initiation, it's possible that a thing like that would cause Bernadette to be disqualified from making it into the coveted social group. So she's done blown that for herself now too. And that was really all Bernadette was hanging on to. She didn't make it into the cheerleading squad. She didn't make it onto the yearbook staff. She was getting shunned by someone she used to be friends with, who was now one of the most popular girls in school. And now she's gone and done this stunt, and it's possible that she's going to lose out again by not becoming one of the Bobbies. And it was just another thing. One more thing that's just building and building and building inside of Bernadette. Remember what she said in her interrogation. She made me feel real dumb about it. Her not wanting to smoke weed. Like this one time I was around her and she seemed to be really putting me down. I feel really just everything that happened before. All the bad feelings and all the bad things that come out. She thought I was being weird because, you know, she said she wanted to go home. When Bernadette was asked if she was angry or if she was trying to scare Kirsten, she stated, I guess I was angry. I don't really know. I just got out of the car and she was talking to that man or something. And I think he was starting to drive away and she was telling me to go away. And I just, you know, I just got angry and I did it. And like, I ran up to her and I stopped. She said something to me and I did it. And it just happened so quick. I don't really know. It's like I was, I was screaming and she was like way up ahead of me and she was running away and I was running away. I wasn't pursuing her and she was getting away from, and I was just, I don't know what I was thinking. I just ran. I was running and I got to the car. I just threw the knife in like in the back and I got in. According to Bernadette's version of things, she said that she didn't bring the knife with her when she left home to go pick up Kirsten. Her sister ended up saying at trial that she was the one who kept the knife in the car to cut fruits and vegetables. I'm not 100% sure how large the knife was, but according to a statement made by Kirsten's parents, they stated the knife was 18 inches long or close to 46 centimeters. And that's really big, and they could have just been exaggerating. I don't know. The Kirsten's parents, and watching them on TV and in the media, I just get a weird vibe from them because they never really look sad. You know who they kind of remind me of? They remind me of Madeline McCann's parents. And there's just this, I don't want to say that it's like this arrogance about them, but I don't know what it is. I can't describe, I can't put it into words, but there's something about their demeanor on camera in the news that doesn't really sit well with me. But I don't know. It's, it's just a weird thing. It's just not like normal parents you see when they're on camera and you can kind of see the grief all over their face. I, I just don't get that from them. But anyway, I kind of think they exaggerated the size of the knife. And I think it was kind of their way to just keep the media attention 
make it sensational to just be able to control the narrative because they had no control over what was happening in their lives. I read somewhere else that it was a 12 inch knife and that turns out to be about 30 centimeters. Either way, that's still a pretty big knife. So Bernadette's sister testified that she's the one who kept the knife in the car. Uh, When she goes to school or to work, she has long days and she has fruits and vegetables with her. She uses it in that sense. I don't know why anyone would cut vegetables in their car. Fruit? Okay. Uh, But I don't think a knife 12 or 18 inches long would be necessary to do so. So I'm not 100% believing that that was the reason why a knife like that was in the car. I would buy that story if it was a paring knife, but also I would most likely cut my fruits and vegetables at home, put them in a Ziploc bag and put them in my cooler. Maybe an exception would be an avocado, but normally I cut an avocado with a butter knife. The knife just seems excessively large for what the explanation for it was. I brought a large knife with me once when I baked a cake and I was bringing it to some place that I wasn't sure had a knife. I brought a kitchen knife with me one time in my car when I was feeling particularly paranoid about something, but that was a steak knife. It wasn't a huge knife out of my knife block. And I don't really have any other kinds of knives except for the ones that I have in my kitchen, which is a very expensive set that I love. And I would never want to mess any of them up by cutting people with them, but I would if I had to. I'm sure some of you are going to come on social media and tell me that all the practical reasons why one would carry a 12 or 18 inch knife in your car other than for just cake. But the bottom line is, I don't know for sure if Bernadette brought the knife with her for the sole purpose of killing Kirsten, but the older sister was willing to get up on the stand and take responsibility for its presence in the Pinto. And then I thought, even for killing a person, that would be a large knife. And it's not that easy to conceal. I mean, if we're going to bring a knife from the kitchen for protection, like I said, I've brought one with me one time. I picked a steak knife because I could put it in my bag pretty easily and it wasn't so sharp that it was going to poke through. But I mean, if we had intentions of killing somebody, I can't imagine bringing a gigantic knife from my kitchen But again, we're talking about a 15-year-old girl who, if she was planning on stabbing Kirsten, decided that this was a go big or go home kind of a moment. Whatever the case was, Bernadette denied bringing the knife with her when she left the house to head over to Kirsten's. She said that her older sister always leaves stuff lying around. She didn't know if it was her sister. She didn't think that she drove around with knives in her car. But that would be the only reason that she could think of why it was there. She said she didn't go into the kitchen and get it before she left. And then she said after she stabbed Kirsten, she got something, and I think she meant she got something to conceal the knife in, and she brought it into her room, and the next day she put it back in the kitchen when nobody was around. So Bernadette was talked to about her potential involvement in Kirsten stabbing for the last time on a Friday. After she was grilled about it but still didn't confess, That was when she went home and just came to the realization that the police and the FBI knew that it was her. And then a couple days later, she wrote that confession note to her parents. She said that she knew the police knew, 
but she thought that they wouldn't be able to prove it because six months had already passed. And she was right. They didn't have enough evidence against her to bring about the charges. But Bernadette got to a point where she just couldn't live with the constant worry and paranoia. And the only way she made it through those six months was she somehow managed to block it all out of her mind, stating, at school, everything was fine. Everything was going well, except for it was always there. I couldn't get rid of it. And that song on the radio, and I'm assuming that Bernadette is talking about a song that may have been playing in the car when that evening with Kirsten started to turn bad. Every time I hear it, I have to turn it off because I think of her. Or people talk about it and stuff. But I was really good about blocking it out of my mind. And I still am. That's why I was able to go back to school this fall. That's why I can live through every day. Because I just forgot it. It doesn't seem real. It still doesn't. And then Bernadette said, well, I guess I should really tell you the background. I have a lot of inferiority feelings and really bad feelings about myself. I lost for cheerleader and I didn't get into the club I wanted to and I didn't get on yearbook. People sent out messages and stuff and I just about had it and just all that stuff. And she just seemed to sort of represent it. She brought it all back. Like when I was talking with her, you know, she never liked me. But I thought she was okay. And I thought we would be okay if we were friends. I mean, we were going to be in the bobbies together and stuff. It was that thing, you know, that I couldn't change. I hate that stuff. Like losing things. Or money. Or looks. Or popularity. Things that are stupid. I mean, I don't know. I'm just like embarrassed about everything. The interviewer asked Bernadette if Kirsten ridiculed her. Did she do something to her while they were in the car? Bernadette stated, She just sort of put me down. I mean, she didn't say you're ugly or something. She just said stuff that made me feel bad. And so I remember one time we were on a ski trip together and we don't have a lot of money and stuff and we can't afford a lot of nice ski stuff. And I just had this really crummy pair of skis and some boots, but you know, I was having fun anyway. And she made a comment about them. And it just seemed like everyone else is thinking that, but she was the only one who would come out and say that. And I thought she was just going to tell everyone at school that I was really weird and everything. And I was really embarrassed and I didn't want her to tell everyone, but it wasn't her fault. If you're saying she provoked me or something, I wasn't thinking of threatening her. I just did it. Towards the end of the interview, Bernadette explained again that after they argued, Kirsten decided to get out of her car and find another way to get home. Bernadette followed her because she wanted to try to explain herself. But to me, Bernadette didn't want the evening to end like that because in her mind, it would be the worst thing in the world for the next thing to happen would be for Kirsten to turn around and tell the whole school that Bernadette made up a fake initiation dinner and started acting really weird. And it was going to be another thing that Bernadette was never going to be able to live down. And she didn't get into the social club that she didn't want to get into. She didn't make it to cheerleading. She didn't make it onto yearbook. And this whole incident with Kirsten, it was probably going to cost her getting into the bobbies. And that was the last thing Bernadette was holding on to. If this whole night had gone the way that Bernadette wanted it to go, 
I tend to think that there would have never been an argument, ergo there never would have been a stabbing. It is also one of the reasons why I have a little bit of doubt that Bernadette planned that and brought the knife with her with the sole purpose of killing Kirsten. I'm not saying that it's a for sure thing, but if her plan was to talk to Kirsten and to get her to accept her as a friend, and if she was confident that she was going to be able to get through to her, then she really had no reason to expect things to escalate to a homicidal point. But then we know that Bernadette started off from a very angry and resentful place. And she told a pretty serious lie in order to get Kirsten out of the house and into the car. And maybe once she knew that Kirsten found out that the whole thing was a lie, then it was likely that Kirsten was going to lose her temper and the knife would be something Bernadette would have wanted to have to defend herself if Kirsten was the one that became threatening or it would turn into a physical fight, but I just don't know. You all listening, tell me what you think. Do you think Bernadette went there with a plan to kill Kirsten or do you think it was an afterthought and the knife was just conveniently there? Three months after she was arrested, Bernadette went on trial. I believe the whole thing was just to figure out exactly what she was guilty of, either first or second degree murder. The audio recording that I played for you was played into the courtroom. Everyone listened intently as Bernadette explained herself. The odd thing was that nobody really understood is she was going to make it into the Bobbies and in becoming a part of that elite social group, all the other things that Bernadette didn't make it into, the things that were making Bernadette feel so bad about herself, all of that would have fallen away. But for whatever reason, the way Bernadette felt about herself, her whole sense of self-esteem, it seemed to rise and fall on how Kirsten treated her and whether or not Kirsten would accept her as a friend. She said it in the recording, I thought it would be okay if we were friends. Not getting into the club, not getting onto cheer, not getting onto the yearbook. All of that would be okay if Kirsten would just be her friend. Because she represented it all. The money, the looks, the popularity. Those things that Bernadette says are stupid. The courtroom was packed. The hatred and the animosity towards Bernadette was palpable. Which may have been one of the reasons why Bernadette and her attorney opted for a bench trial as opposed to a jury trial, likely thinking that they weren't going to get 12 people that didn't hate this girl's guts. After three days of testimony, the judge convicted Bernadette of second-degree murder. She was sentenced to nine years in the California Youth Authority. Following her conviction, Kirsten's parents moved to Hawaii. The sentence was a huge disappointment to them, believing that it hardly even measured up to the loss that they suffered. And to an extent, I agree. I mean, but what punishment is suitable for losing a child to murder? It doesn't really seem like there is one. Now, this is a case that I would have loved to have seen a little bit more, I guess, more understanding in terms of the torment that Bernadette suffered, which Kirsten led the charge in doling out the community completely turned on Bernadette. 
One classmate after another recalled just how mean Kirsten was to Bernadette. It wasn't just Bernadette's word. People corroborated it. That, yeah, Kirsten was a bully. Denigrating is the word they used. And by no means do I blame the victim here. There is no justification for what Bernadette did. But we still do have to consider, we must consider, that she was a child and children's minds just aren't developed and grown. And from the way Bernadette sounded in her audio taped interrogation, I don't think she truly understood the reality and the finality of what she was doing. I think the punishment was all right. It was all the judge could do based on the laws as they were written at the time. Nobody ever thinks they're going to get murdered. Kirsten didn't think when she opened that car door and said, oh, it's you, that she was poking the bear one too many times. Bernadette served seven years of her nine-year sentence. She was released in June of 1992 at the age of 23. She ended up leaving the state also, and she changed her name. But it seems as if she eventually made her way back to Northern California. You see, there's a blog out there, and I'll post a link to it, where the author of the blog is obsessed with this case. And that's the author who is saying that, not me. She doesn't have very much content, but she did discover Bernadette's new identity and outed her. It's a very anti-Bernadette blog. And I ran across it at the last minute as I was about to wrap up my research into this case. So Bernadette goes by two different names, either Jeanette or Virginia, and her online work profile is posted on the blog. It says Virginia Varela joined Golden Pacific Bank as chief executive officer and member of the board of directors for the bank and Golden Pacific Bank Corp in 2013. Ms. Valera held various positions as both a community bank executive and as a former regulator and brings with her more than 25 years of community banking experience. Ms. Varela is considered a bank turnaround expert. She successfully improved banks as EVP, Chief Operating Officer of the Bank of the Orient, CEO and President of the Bank of Rio Vista in the California Delta region, and president and director of the San Luis Trust Bank in San Luis Obispo. Ms. Varela is a member of the California Bankers Association Board of Directors. Ms. Varela's contributions were recognized through a Woman of Distinction Award in the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as other honors and certifications over the years. Ms. Varela holds a BS in Economics, a BA in English Literature, and an MBA from the University of California Berkeley. So the blogger wrote this. For many years, I have been reading about Kirsten Costas and Bernadette Prati. Since the time I watched the Lifetime movie, A Friend to Die For, I found myself obsessed with this case. Years later, the Costas family is still in pain and they will never have their beloved child back. But Bernadette and her family have moved on, had children and successful careers. She's now a CEO. This blogger finished her post by saying, oh, and Virginia, Jeanette, or Bernie, don't even bother with the dumb and senseless comments you leave. I suggest you change your name again, or better yet, just apologize to the Costas family and own the fact that you're a killer. 
that's a fact. And now your sister is a millionaire and it was her knife, so she claims. The Costas family should sue you clowns for every penny you're worth since you guys aren't poor anymore. First off, this blogger used the wrong spelling for the word your when she wrote every penny you're worth. Secondly, it seems like a lot of years have passed. It'll be 40 years next summer. And for there to still be so much animosity from someone who just recently became obsessed with the case without any real connection to it or the family. I mean, come on. Bernadette, she did pay her debt to society. She was only 15 years old when this happened. There's never any justification for murder. But is there a point when enough is enough? She's gone on and had a successful life. She's raised a family. She's stayed out of trouble. We, and we being you and me, all of us listening to this and other crime podcasts, shows, documentaries, etc. We look at these stories from a case-by-case basis. There are some people out there who don't ever deserve a second chance at life. They don't deserve to ever be free depending on the nature of their crimes. There are just some people out there that just need to be locked away forever. We've learned a great deal about adolescence and brain development and the idea of locking children up for life. It's just something we don't do anymore. We've moved away from that. And there are lots of people out there who complain about the American justice system being broken. There is this massive focus on punishment versus rehabilitation because we can't believe or trust that a person can pay their debt and come out the other end of it and do good. And here we have an example of a young woman who did the most horrific thing one human being can do to another, yet at the end of the day, she managed to pull off a decent life. She didn't become a statistic or another casualty of a flawed system. She's the example of what we say we would like to see happen when it comes to integrating these offenders back into society. So I get why the vitriol towards her lingers all these years later. And while there's never a perfect ending to a story when a murder happens, but for all intents and purposes, I kind of think that the outcome of this story could have turned out a whole lot worse. And that is all I've got for you this week. I will be back soon with the next installment of our crimey little show. Until then, sweet dreams. <laughs>